0: Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Hopefully you can hear me. That sounds good. Okay. All right. The text that I'm going to read from is found in Luke chapter 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Tonight I'm going to focus on the words of Jesus, his prayer, really. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The first thing that struck me about this is how amazingly compassionate it was for Jesus to pray for the benefit of other people when he was being absolutely abandoned, disgraced, and tortured. It speaks volumes about our Lord. But I have to say there was another thing that struck me. The words, they do not know what they are doing. The Son of God is right in front of their eyes sacrificing himself for them, And they don't know it. Well, I figured that might be a question of yours too, so I decided to pursue the answer. And that became uh, the subject of my talk tonight. How could they not see? So for starters, it's helpful to go back about 600 years or so to the prophet Isaiah, who foretold, and this is God talking, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. That's Isaiah chapter 42. See, Isaiah wasn't just talking about physical sight, but also spiritual sight. So we see that the very people that Jesus came to save are actually spiritually blind. And so how could they discern him? In 1 Corinthians 2, we get more insight into this concept of spiritual blindness. Paul writes, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So don't be surprised if people don't immediately understand spiritual things, right? And one thing is for sure, if the blind are going to be rescued, it's not going to be because they're going to rescue themselves. You've heard of blind spots. If you're blind, you can't see that there's anything wrong. It takes someone from the outside to see it, and care enough to let you know. And let's just say that when someone points out someone else's blind spots, it's usually not very well received. You know, this reminds me of something I learned about water rescue a long, long time ago. When you're dealing with a drowning person, getting into the water with them is the absolute last resort because the fact is, drowning people are dangerous. In their panic, they're often blind to the fact that they're rescuers trying to help them. And every year, tragically, you hear about rescue attempts that turn into double drownings. So one thing they teach you in water rescue is how to knock somebody out. To make them go lights out so you can get on with saving their life. Now, it's interesting to me that God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't force himself on anyone or make us submit to his will, it's been said that God is a gentleman. He respects the individual's free will. But it's not like he just stands on the shore watching us struggle. Jesus, our rescuer, plunges into the water, taking the full brunt of our blind flailing, all for the possibility that we could see and be rescued. And this is what we see Luke recounting for us in the passage as Jesus endures the mockery, the insults, the torture. But notice that there are perhaps more people that aren't directly acting as executioner. Instead of acting out against Jesus, theirs is more of an acting in, if you will. I say that because they're inwardly focused on their own view of what Jesus should be, that they miss who he really is. To some who were waiting for a messiah, they dismissed him, ironically, because he didn't look like their idea of a messiah. And to some who were waiting for a king, they dismissed him because he didn't look like their idea of a king. The fact is, we all see through the lens of our own expectations, blind to the true identities of people and situations. Just take a look at the world. We do it with each other, making judgments about people, putting them in boxes without even knowing them, looking at someone's appearance and letting that define them. You don't have to look far to see that the world's a mess. And whether it's political, racial, or just relational, I think you can make a case that this blindness that we're talking about is nearly always at the core. This kind of blindness hurt our Lord. It put him on the cross. And it certainly hurts people. So what's the remedy for this spiritual blindness? How can we get our eyes to see through mere appearances to the heart of what truly is? From what we've already said, we know the remedy has to be external to us. If you're blind, you can't even see your blindness. The remedy also has to come from one who truly sees. Otherwise, it just ends up being the blind leading the blind. But is that all? Consider that you could have someone who sees all and is external to you, but doesn't have your best interest in mind. Or worse yet, has evil intentions for you. So in addition to the remedy being someone who sees all, it must be someone who truly loves us that has our best interest in mind. So here's the good news. As Jesus hung on the cross, Mankind looked into the face of God and missed it. By contrast, God looked into our face and he sees all, all of our faults and failures and accepts it all. To our faults and failures, let's call that sin, he says, I'll take that on myself to be put to death forever. And to us, he says, I'll take you to myself and give you life so that you may have it to the full. So what do we do with all this? Well, I guess if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, be in thankful humility. Thank God that your eyes were opened, but be vigilant. Until we're with him in glory, we carry around our fallen nature, and we still have those nagging blind spots. And so we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can be the light in this world that we're called to be. Now, if you're not a believer, but you sense that there's something wrong, you're on to something. For you, my humble recommendation is this. Don't delay. Again, God won't force himself on you. Love doesn't do that. But there is a certainty called death that will one day force itself on all of us. And we don't get to pick the time. And though your body dies, you live forever. And if you die clutching your sins, God will respect your will and say to you, Thy will be done. And then you and your sins live out their full actualization in a godless eternity. Not because God doesn't want to be with you, but because God being perfect in nature can't be around sin. He can't have union with it. It's like oil and water, light and dark. They just don't mix. If you think this world is troubled, the only thing holding back total chaos and pain is God. Imagine this life in the absence of God. It's a sobering thought. But imagine this. If you say Lord, take my sin. I don't want it anymore. He'll take that sin on himself and pay for it with his blood. And with your sin wiped away, you get to go into an eternity of love and perfection with him. Now, I know there are people that don't believe that. I get it. It, it, it seems too good to be true. But you can't make this stuff up. If you're someone who doesn't believe... I would simply ask you one question. How do you know that you don't have a blind spot? By definition, if you do, you wouldn't even know it. And so I would encourage you to simply ask the Lord to open your eyes. It's not hard to ask, and you have everything to gain from that question. And this is a prayer He wants to answer. He's already in the water. Waiting to reach out, waiting for you to reach out to him, so that he can reach out to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: My honor. Okay. Before I begin, I, just a, a word of warning: I'm going to be sharing some graphic details about crucifixion that some may find disturbing, and I won't be offended if you want to excuse yourself for the next few minutes. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 through 46. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the night. We can only imagine the pain and suffering that Jesus endured that day. We don't know a lot about the details of Jesus' crucifixion because the Romans employed various methods, but it is surely one of the most gruesome forms of execution ever invented. meant not only to be physically excruciating, a word which literally means out of crucifying, but also humiliating. Most victims were scourged with whips prior to being crucified, inflicting deep wounds all the way to the ribs, They would be then forced to carry at least part of their cross, weighing 100 pounds or more to the place of execution, usually a very public place, meant to deter onlookers from committing similar crimes and to humiliate the victim. In artwork, Jesus is usually portrayed on the cross wearing a loincloth and having nails in his hands. But most people were crucified naked. And there's evidence to suggest that the nails were not driven through the hands, but through the wrists, where the bones of the hand would act as a sort of hook. Otherwise, the nails would just strip through the skin and soft tissue of the hand, which is why some, sometimes crucified victims were tied to the cross as well. The Romans often nailed their victims' feet or heels to the cross as well, placed a small platform or even a sharp object uh, underneath the feet, which seems cruel in that it was painful, but it was also designed to prolong death, because every breath that Jesus took on the cross placed pressure on the nails in his feet to provide counter pressure for his diaphragm to expand his lungs. If the feet were not supported in this way, death by asphyxiation would proceed much more rapidly. In minutes to hours, but some crucified victims hung on their crosses for days. And nobody knows the exact cause of death and crucifixion, and it might vary depending on the, on the person, but due to blood loss, dehydration, or physical exhaustion of the muscles of respiration leading to asphyxiation, they were often left hanging on the cross for days to decompose or be eaten by wild animals. Because Roman soldiers were not allowed to lead the site of the crucifixion until the condemned had died, sometimes they would break the legs of those being crucified to speed up the death uh, or stab them in the side or deliver sharp blows to the chest. We can only imagine what Jesus felt on the cross. But his agony went well beyond physical pain and suffering. I already mentioned the humiliation of being stripped naked, In addition, Jesus was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He was mocked and ridiculed by the leaders of his community. In the book Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants, Dr. Paul Brand, one of the early experts on leprosy, identified several intensifiers of pain, including fear, guilt, and loneliness. He highlighted these examples with stories of soldiers who suffered terrible injuries such as leg amputations without complaining of any pain but then days later when they're admitted to the hospital would scream in terror or whimper like children at the thought of receiving an antibiotic injection while admitted to the hospital Jesus' pain was surely intensified by these things especially guilt and loneliness while Jesus did nothing deserving of guilt he felt the guilt of the sins of the entire world but all of this pales in comparison to being forsaken by God we can only imagine the pain, humiliation and shame that Jesus suffered, but can we even really imagine what it is like to be forsaken by God when God forsook Jesus, he turned his back on him said something to him, said something to the effect of, I never want to see you again and rejected him To be cast out of God's presence, to a place utterly void of his grace, is to experience hell. None of us have experienced that. Some theologians have even defined hell in those terms. The only place where God is not present, where even the laws of nature, such as gravity that we take for granted, are thrown into complete chaos. Up and down, hot and cold, the forward movement of time, constantly changing, teasing you. We often think of hell as a place of physical pain, but it's probably much more than that. As one of my pastors put it, we, no one can really imagine what hell is like without going insane. Let me return to Jesus' cry. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It almost seems sacrilegious for me to try to answer this question. But why? Why did God forsake Jesus? In short, for you and for me. Each and every one of us has rejected God, just like Adam and Eve chose the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. We've all chosen that same path. We all deserve to be cast out of God's presence and suffer the death that Jesus died, and suffer the torment of hell. This is hard for us to accept. We think we're not that bad. We haven't committed murder or any heinous crime deserving of the death penalty. During World War II, Adolf Eichmann was one of the masterminds behind the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews. He escaped capture for many years, but when he was captured, he was brought back to Jerusalem to stand trial. At one point in the trial, a man... Who had survived one of the Nazi concentration camps, stood before Eichmann and broke down in tears. In an interview following this, he explained why. It wasn't because Eichmann looked like a monster, or because it brought back memories of all the terrible things he had suffered. It was because he looked like a normal person, like you and me. He realized that there is an Eichmann in all of us. Evil is pervasive we are all des- all deserving of the death that Jesus died. If we can try to imagine what Jesus went through for us, we might be able to get a small taste of the just as incomprehensible relief and joy and forgiveness that his death accomplished. As the song How Deep the Father's Love puts it, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These may be some of the bitterest words in scripture, but they may also be
2: some of the most wonderful. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, They beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Next slide. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women had come with Jesus from Galilee following Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Next slide. I'd like to focus, um, next slide please. I'd like to focus our talk tonight on Jesus' words here, his final words from the cross in Luke 23. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As I was pondering the idea of committing our spirit to the Father, two instances from my life um, kept coming to my mind this week. And I think they both relate very well to the idea of committing our spirit to the Father. And I'd like to share these instances with you briefly about, uh, well, many decades ago now, I was coaching football, and the quarterback from our team, um, his father was a man named Don. And Don was a good man. He was a fun guy to be around, and he was a very generous man, very supportive of Lutheran West, very supportive of our Boosters Club and our program there. Don was a wealthy guy. He was very successful in business. He lived in a beautiful home, he drove a Porsche. He let me drive his Porsche once, pretty sweet, but really why would you want to drive a Porsche every day when you can drive a ten-year-old Corolla, but anyway, I got to know Don a little bit that way, and uh, he was a fun guy to be around, and like I said, very generous. A few years later, after I'd lost track of Don, his, his son had graduated from school, I heard that Don had gotten seriously ill. Uh, and the illness he had uh, led to his untimely death. He died as a fairly young man. And I remember going to the funeral home, to the visitation, to visit with and try to give them some words of encouragement. You know those of us of a certain age in this room, this is something we've done many times, right? We've gone to funeral homes, we've gone to funerals, we've tried to give words of comfort or encouragement to families in their time of loss. And a lot of times, Ironically, when we're at a funeral home like that, if a person is a believer that's died, there's, although there's pain and loss, there's also some joy and even celebration. When I went to the funeral home to visit with Don's family, it was a very, very different experience. I walked in the door, and I was immediately hit with this overwhelming feeling of despair. Despair. It was palpable. I could feel it. But I walked in and as I began to chat with members of the family and I went and talked with Don's wife, it became very quickly evident to me that Don, as nice a guy as he was and as generous a guy as he was, was not a man of faith. He had no relationship to the Lord whatsoever. And I think most of the people that were members of his family in that room that day didn't have that relationship either. So when they were faced with Don's death, there was a finality to that that they just couldn't manage there was death that led to despair and hopelessness and it was sad and i've never forgotten that day and i'm going to contrast that to a different situation now i'm going to talk about my dad aside from my wife judy my dad was a significant person in my life he was a man of deep faith he was a salt of the earth kind of a man. He could fix anything and do anything, and he would fix anything and do anything for you, and he wouldn't charge you a cent. And he lived his life, um, this deep faith that he had, he lived it out in service to others, and left a great impression on me. About four decades ago, my dad developed lung cancer, and he battled these for two years and the way they treat lung cancer today is very different than the way they treated it four decades ago but my dad battled that disease and he was in and out of the hospital the last couple years of his life and I remember that Judy and I were in Milwaukee visiting with him while he was in the hospital he was getting to the end and it it was tough but we had spent some time with him that week but it was time to come back to Cleveland it was time to come back to school and back to coaching it was August it was time to come back So we were saying our goodbyes, thinking that we'd hopefully be getting back to see him again in a month or two. But rather than going right from Milwaukee to Cleveland and back here, back home here, we had to make a detour. We went down to Chicago that night because Judy was standing up in the wedding of a friend. So we went to that wedding on Saturday, and on Sunday morning our intent was to get up and drive home to Cleveland. Well, my mom called, and my mom said, home, taking a real turn for the worse. So we jumped in a car and we went right to the hospital. And you know, those of you that know anything about Chicago, we got stuck in a huge traffic jam, which tested all my faith and all my patience. But we got there, and we walked in the room and I saw—believe I the difference in just 48 hours. He had just had made a dramatic turn for the worse. He was just fighting. He was just fighting. He was in pain. And my mom told me later. She said, "Joel, I think Dad was fighting and, and just fighting until you and Judy got here." So we spent a few minutes with my dad in Judy's hand, and I said, we, we gotta step outside and we gotta pray. And we walked out of the room and we found this little like prayer chapel or something down at the end of the hall, this whole room that was empty. And I remember kneeling down and tears were coming through my eyes. I remember praying this. I said, Lord, please take him. Take him home, take him out of the pain. Imagine this. I'm praying that the Lord takes my dad, but he's the most significant person in my life. It's a great example of Romans 8, where the Bible says that sometimes we don't know what to pray, but the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And I think He did that day. The other thing that happened that, that made that possible, I think, is that we had spent most of that week with my dad, and he had told me on a number of occasions that week, he said, Joel, don't worry. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So Judy and I left that little room. We went back in by my dad. I took his hand, and we the whole family was there. And I held his hand, and we were there for maybe a half an hour. And I was holding his hand and praying, and I, I could feel his spirit leave this earth and slip into eternity. I could feel it. And at that moment, The peace came over me that I can't describe. It's what the Bible calls the peace that passes understanding and that peace is real. And I know my dad felt it too at that moment as he passed from this life into eternity, into the arms of his Savior. I know he felt it. You see, my dad followed Jesus' example. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had already done that. That week, and he was, and the byproduct of that was an overwhelming peace for him when that transition came. You see, in Don's life, death was final, there was nothing else, just hopelessness. But I think my dad, through faith, came to understand the fact that death is really not final, it's just a transition. It's a transition that God enables us to make wrapped in the arms of His peace. Isn't that cool? That's not the end of the story, though. Because I think Jesus' example of everything he went through on the cross and what Tim and Nate talked about tonight, it's not just this final word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But I think it's how we approach the suffering all along. We can go back to Thursday evening. Stood before the, he knelt before the Father and he said, Father, take this cup from me. And the Lord didn't do that, but he strengthened him. And all through that horrific suffering that Nate just described, I think what Jesus was doing was he was surrendering to the Father. He was entrusting his whole life to the Father. He was in the process of committing his spirit to the Father. And you know, the example of that, we can follow too. I don't think God just wants us to commit our spirit to the Father in the end of our life. I think he wants us to do it right now. He wants us to entrust our lives to him now. And just as Jesus did that in his time of greatest sorrow and struggle and pain, we can do the same thing. So when we think about times of pain that we're going through now or struggle that we're going through, and it might be physical pain. It might be emotional pain. It might be loss of someone we love. It might be the loss of a job. It might be broken relationships or financial ruin, whatever it is. Our suffering is never going to compare to what Jesus went through. But we can follow his example. Next slide. So one of my favorite verses has always been Philippians 4:6. And as we face times of struggle and trial, just like this is what the Bible tells us to do. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We can follow Jesus' example in times of great stress and pain and sorrow by turning them over to the Lord. Like the book of James says, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. And here's our blueprint. So through prayer, we can literally entrust our lives and all of our circumstances to the Lord. And as we do that, we get to experience a little bit of that peace of God each time we do it. And the cool thing about this is, if we can make this a pattern in our lives, that we continually go back to the Father and we entrust our lives to Him and we commit our spirits to Him, we experience the peace and we experience the peace again and we experience the peace again. We get better at it each time we do it. And then there's going to come a time when we're going to be just like my dad and we're going to be at the end of our rope here on earth. But it's not going to be more than we can handle. Because we've prepared ourselves by already entrusting our, our lives to God so many times before. And we've experienced the peace. And that same peace that we've get a glimpse of here on earth is going to be even greater when we transition from this life into the next. Follow the Lord's example. Commit your spirit to the Lord and trust your very lives to him. And the peace of God is what you'll receive now and on that day to come. Amen?
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.